from the Alaska Airline Studio. Presented by 2020lifestyles.com. This is The Blitz. The first look at the top stories in Seattle sports. They don't make them like us. We're not like everybody else. The rundown on everything Seattle sports on your way to work. Swing and a fly ball. Deep right center field. He did it again. And the stories everyone is talking about. This is the Blitz at Six. Good morning, friends. Welcome to the Blitz at Six. Lydia Cruz alongside with you Wednesday, June 3rd. Ahead in this hour, we've got some news updates for you on NFL, their schedule, at least for training camp. We're hearing a couple of different announcements, but uh, a memo obtained by Roger Goodell advising on teams on how the training camp practices will work, mainly that they're allowed to go out of state which will change the plans for several different teams we'll discuss also when could nfl players be expected to return to their team facilities we hear from him the nba modeling a 22 team format for the season's proposed resumption beginning july 31st in orlando florida but how will the postseason end up playing out and how late could it possibly go how could it affect next season we'll hear on that from adrian warjanowski and then also a really cool episode of flying coach podcast coming out last night greg popovich joining steve kerr and pete carroll to talk about how they as leaders and as white men can be an important part of the discussion and moving things forward when it comes to racial injustice. Also, their interactions with their players and Pete Carroll on what he is talking about with uh, with his players right now. We'll hear from them ahead all in this hour. Right now, let's get to your headlines. NFL teams uh, are being told that they need to hold training camps this summer at their main practice facilities because of the coronavirus pandemic. We heard this from Roger Goodell, a commissioner telling all 32 organizations in a memo Tuesday, which was obtained by ESPN. He also said that teams will not be allowed to hold joint training camp practices with other teams. Uh, he wrote, quote, the NFLPA was strongly in favor of these two decisions, which were uh, made to limit exposure risk by avoiding the need for clubs to clean and maintain two facilities by limiting the need for players and club staffs to travel to another location, sometimes located at a considerable distance from the home facility, and by limiting travel and contact between players on different clubs in the context of joint practices. These steps are being taken for the 2020 preseason to address the current conditions and are not expected to be in place in 2021. In 2019, 10 teams practiced away from their main practice facilities. Just to give you a little bit idea about that, among them, the Carolina Panthers, the Dallas Cowboys, and the Pittsburgh Steelers. Also scheduled for the Hall of Fame game in Canton, Ohio on August 6th and would be the first two teams to report in late July. Pittsburgh usually trains uh, in nearby Latrobe in Pennsylvania. The Cowboys held training camp in Oxnard, California from 2012 to 2019 and had been in discussions with the city as well as the River Ridge residents in their camp home about pushing back their dates this summer as well as securing the site for camps in the future. Meanwhile, other teams, Washington, Buffalo Bills, Kansas City Chiefs, Indianapolis Colts and the L.A. Rams notably 
also normally leave their facilities. Um, so they're dealing with it. The Raiders moved to Las Vegas has been complicated by the pandemic as well. They had been working out of their Oakland area complex in Alameda, uh, had been planning to hold training camp as usual in Nam- Napa, about one hour north of the Bay Area, but now will hold camp at their new facility in Henderson, Nevada. The league announced in mid-May that teams could begin reopening their facilities on a limited basis and it would have to be in accordance with state and local governments as they allowed. The next phase of reopening began this Monday with clubs allowed to reopen ticket offices, retail shops and other customer facing facilities as long as they complied with those regulations. Currently, no coaches are allowed in team facilities, although that could change in the near future. We did also see from ESPN reporting that NFL players, though, not expected to return to their t- team facilities until training camp. Most teams already have reopened, uh, as I mentioned, on a limited basis for essential employees amid the coronavirus pandemic. But healthy players still are not allowed to return. Discussions about when to allow players to return are ongoing, though, and neither the NFL nor any of its teams have announced official dates for when training camp will begin. Uh, we do know that they are benefiting from not being in season like plenty of, the, plenty of these other leagues, which are still working on their plans to return, and Albert Breer speaking about that yesterday. They had advantages that other leagues didn't. You know, basketball and hockey were in the middle of their seasons. Baseball was in a position where they were getting ready to start theirs. You know, football was in the heart of their off season. You know, anything that was in person at this point, you know, is really sort of disposable. Like, they didn't need to do it. So they were able to hold free agency and hold the draft and hold a lot of their meetings without actually having to have anybody in person anywhere. But the timeline for players uh, and coaches returning still being discussed as of now. The NBA modeling a 22-team format for the season's proposed resumption, which could begin July 31st in Orlando, Florida, at least according to plans. A timeline uh, shared with teams as a last possible date for a finals game seven lands on October 12th, according to an ESPN report. Commissioner Adam Silver is expected to have a proposal to take to a vote of the NBA's Board of Governors this Thursday, Adrian Wojnarowski explaining how late the NBA postseason could go this year. The October 12th, teams have been informed, would be the last possible day of the NBA season. A Game 7 of the NBA Finals would be pegged to that day. And so it essentially gives you the framework in the 22-team model that the league has been focused on and moving toward bringing to the owners on Thursday you would have a July 31 opening tip and potentially an October 12th end date of the season. And then you'd have your draft and free agency in sequential order after that. Woj also explaining the implications of the timeline and a potential for next season as well on SportsCenter with Scott Van Pelt. What happens the rest of this season? How does it impact next year for teams? And I think that's a big part of when teams vote on Thursday Scott, that I think there's a lot of teams who are willing to accept things that they don't particularly love about this bubble environment because they have to believe it's going to set the league up competition-wise for the future, financially for the future, get as much revenue as they can out of this campus environment in Orlando because there are big financial questions coming for the league next year. And again, You know, teams who know that they may not have a chance at winning a title this year, the league could look different next year. And and, and they're putting their trust in Adam Silver that this summer is something that builds 
into the league's future, and he's going to get the benefit of that doubt as teams are voting Thursday, and this measure in all likelihood passes very easily. Meanwhile, in baseball, we know MLB and MLBPA still negotiating and uh, the players' response to the MLB's proposal. Uh, There's 114 games at the full prorated salary. MLB and Rob Manfred believing they still have ultimate power over the schedule because of the agreement back in March and looking to play less games could end up playing as a last resort something around 50 games. Buster Olney mentioning yesterday, MLB not really negotiating at this point. They're not really negotiating. They just seem to be repackaging their ideas and then presenting them again, and they're not really working toward the middle ground. For example, on the owner side, we initially heard about maybe a 50-50 revenue split, giving the players a chunk of money saying, this is what's available. The players indicated no, that wouldn't be acceptable. So then we got the sliding scale 82 game proposal. And then yesterday... We heard about, well, you know what, Uh, if the 82 game is not acceptable, the sliding scale, we'll give you a 50-game schedule with this same chunk of money. And on the player's side, all their proposals are that the players would get full prorated salary. What is the likelihood if they did play that 50-game season or in any event that the sum players would opt out and choose not to play. I think pretty much 100%. Look, we heard from Blake Snell asking the question out loud on that video, uh, essentially, is it worth it? And I think a lot of players are going to be asking that question whenever they get the final terms in the deal with the owners. And I do think eventually they'll get to a deal. Uh, But there might be health concerns for an individual player. There might be a player who's headed into free agency in the fall and says, you know what, I don't want to be judged on a small sample. There might be concerns about uh, injury risks, especially after this weird spring training thing that they're going through. I think that's why the players the other day with their 114-game proposal address the idea of players who opt out of playing this year and asking that they get fully paid. Agents are telling me there will be players who will not participate. Keith Law, also who writes for The Athletic, commenting on this and saying both sides will lose, though, if there is no season. The players would like to play as much as possible because the way their last agreement with the owners was structured, the one they struck in March, the more they play, the more they get paid. Well, owners probably are better off with a shorter season. They're not better off with no season, but it seems like they're a little better off with a shorter season because they'll make almost as much money on the TV side. And if the season's a little shorter, they'll have to pay out less in player salaries. I think ultimately there's going to be a deal struck, assuming that the public health situation allows it, because both sides lose if there's no season. Coming up on the Blitz, uh, we have a little bit of Seahawks news, signing news, and also still to come here from Steve Kerr, Pete Carroll, Greg Popovich, three of the coaching greats, on how they are navigating this time with their teams and having important conversations that will lead to change. It's next on The Blitz right here on 710 ESPN Seattle. You're listening to The Blitz from the Alaska Airlines Studio. Welcome back to the Blitz at six, Lydia Cruz, alongside with you Wednesday, June third. If you haven't been listening, please subscribe to the Flying Coach podcast. Uh, it's a limited series podcast put out by the Ringer between Steve Carroll, 
or excuse me, maybe that's her new moniker, Steve Kerr and Pete Carroll, uh, two legendary coaches and usually bringing in pretty incredible guests along the way to add their perspective. And this week, a very special episode where they had Greg Popovich on, another legendary coach, and uh, especially a relationship with Steve Kerr in coaching together. Uh, And he had some great thoughts. Pop always wanted to speak his mind uh, on issues and current events and, of course, a very important time for speaking out against racial injustice and Greg Pop offering some, some pretty profound words, but let's start with Pete Carroll, who also had some things to say about how the Seahawks are dealing with this right now and this week, what this week has been like for them going through the virtual off season and having these Zoom meetings. What's their approach been like? Well, first off, the uh, because of our longstanding relationships with with our teams and our, our players and the backgrounds and, and always caring about them enough to to want to know about their families and want to know where they come from and want to know what they've been through to try to understand them better and love them better as we go through the process of trying to make winning teams. The connection is so deep uh, and, and the, the understanding uh, as we have, as I have learned over the years about the pain and the discomfort and the, 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 the horrific burden that our, that our players carry with them, the, the responsibility to want to do something and, and knowing that we're in a position where maybe we, we could do something, it makes it, you know, such a challenge because it, it, it feels so, it feels so helpless. I can identify with, with pop saying that moment when he, when he looked in the eyes of that guy and he just didn't care. It just, you know, it was just like a lost feeling. What, how can we prevent this from being, being a reality? You know? Pete, on how they move forward from those type of moments. This is a wonderful opportunity, Greg. I'm so glad you, you, you're doing this with this because it's really. I'm hoping it's it's uh, you know just three three white guys speaking to white guys and and uh, and and let them let people understand kind of where we're coming from and, and share with them. And so the point, Steve, is that when in our meetings and as we go forward on Friday, we, we just we had to address what was going on because it was already starting. And knowing that we were leading into the weekend, that was going to be really heated up most likely and, 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 and accentuated the, the craziness and all. We came back on Monday and went right to it again. And, and we break up and we, we, we have our, we have teams within our team. So we have a, a kind of a setup makeup where we can really visit and let guys speak their hearts and, and talk about, you know, how this is impacting them and how it's affecting them. And so that we could all share in everybody's stories that that's the process that we, we went through. Being oblivious, uh, all three coaches talked about, is not an option during this time. And Pete saying they want guys to interact and speak on this subject. We're trying to interact as much as we can with our guys and hear from them and listen and, and learn and grow and, 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 and find a place where we can act and do something really positive, which our club has done that over the years. But, but we need to do more, and we're never done, and, and we can't live. The, I know the white guys on my, in my staff, as you said, we're, you know, we have a bunch of guys on both sides of the table here that are have different issues and backgrounds. We can't live with an oblivious way of looking at this. We can't do that. We, it, it's a, it's the privilege that, like you said, pop white people have. There's this living in a, you know, oblivious to what's going on. That ain't okay. And so I'm trying to convey that to my guys that we, we see it that way. And then we're trying to learn from each other and see if we can move ahead, you know, together. And the senseless killing of George Floyd 
is unfortunately not an isolated incident. Pete Carroll saying they've been here before. They do not want to be here again. We've been here before, and we've been through this before. For my younger players, the guys that are the, the rooks, you know, that are coming in, it's an opportunity for them to hear from our leaders. And we have marvelous guys that speak on behalf of of the communities and speak on behalf of their families and speak on behalf of themselves as teammates. Uh, they show the way for for younger guys how they can speak and talk, and it's okay in our in our in our environment to, to communicate it all in, in the hopes of just finding some kind of sense of, of understanding, you know, and then how do we take the next step with this new experience that we've just lived through? And it's, it's, it's so horrific as it is again, it's again is what kills us, you know, and, and probably again, it happened. We were facing it again. And unfortunately, you know, the fear of it happening again in ahead of us is just, I just unbearable to me. We'll hear more from Pete Carroll on specifically things that they believe that they can do, positive steps they can take, as well as Greg Popovich. Stay tuned for that. It's ahead right here on 710 ESPN Seattle. From the Alaska Airlines studio, this is The Blitz. Welcome back to The Blitz at 6. Lydia Cruz alongside with you Wednesday, June 3rd. Yesterday on with the professor on the John Clayton, legend Kurt Warner joining uh, joining John to chat about several things, including Russell Wilson and how he's seen him progress over his career. But also mentioning that he thinks there's still room for Russ to improve. There's still work that he has to do. So that was a topic of conversation on with Bob David Moore yesterday. Here's here's Kurt Warner again on with John Clayton today talking about Russell Wilson. Cut number 10. You know, he's up there as well. And, you know, for me with Russell is that, you know, I don't know if I've appreciated Russell, uh, you know, kind of like I was talking about with Deshaun Watson, uh, appreciating him enough over the last few years. And, you know, because a lot of times I see the athleticism and I see the playmaking and all that stuff, I mean, just jumps off the page to you. But having been a guy that played the game inside the pocket, you know, I'm always looking for these guys to develop a little bit better in the pocket. It uh, may be not holding them in as high regard um, as they develop as a pocket passer. But I, I think he's one of the greatest winners that our game has. And that, to me, should supersede anything in terms of how you play the quarterback position. It's how do you get your team to play around you? And how do you give your team a chance to win every time out? And nobody does that better than Russell Wilson. And so I've come to appreciate uh, just more of, of who he is as a, as a you know, in its entirety as a quarterback, even though I, I think there's still some work to be done inside the pocket and, and on schedule and some of those things, if he could develop that a little bit better to go along with everything else he brings to the table, I mean, it would just be, it would be incredible to watch. Yeah, except that I think we've, I know we've looked at his numbers in the pocket. They've got passer ratings when he, when he breaks outside the pocket. They've got passer ratings inside the pocket. His numbers are off the charts pretty much everywhere. So I'm, I, I guess my question would have been, you know, what what are you seeing when he's in the pocket? What is it you, you're not seeing? Because he, he's pretty adept and pretty efficient no matter where he's at. He does roll out a lot. He's had some pretty suspect O-lines. So if he doesn't roll out, he's going to take a beating. But I, I, I feel like that's a bit of a misnomer. I don't, I don't feel like he struggles in the pocket. 
Yeah, well, remember there was that one year where, I think it was 2015, where he just didn't leave the pocket and had something like 88% completion percentage in the times that he was, uh, it was over like a five or six game streak. So, yeah, he's just getting better and better. So, yeah, I just think, and, and Russ, to me, I mean, the durability is just amazing to me. I don't know about you, Bob. That's the one thing, I, whenever I look at players, I, I, I can't stop myself from talking about it. When you find a guy like Larry Fitzgerald, I remember Carlos Dansby playing linebacker. Yeah. I mean, the guy over like 12, 13 years has missed like four games. Russ has missed zero, man. It's just, it's it's amazing. It's uncanny how he's so durable. And that allows him in the offseason, you know, that's a huge thing. You don't have to rehabilitate any injuries in the offseason. You can just work on your game. I mean, it, it doesn't take any time away from that. And it just seems like Russell does something every year that gets better and better and better. And I thought last year the best thing was his leadership and his ability to take a team over and basically, you know, once all those, you know, Earl Thomas, Richard Sherman, those guys were gone, that he's been able to to really put his stamp, his personality on this team. Yeah, I mean, you're only as good as you are available, right, in the NFL? You're going to get injured. You know, it's a matter of time. It's how severe is the injury and, and how do you respond from that? And Russell Wilson has done a good job taking care of his body. And, you know, I hear Kurt Warner, I hear his comments, and I respect the dude, Super Bowl champion, Hall of Fame. Like, I mean, he knows way more football than I know. Um, but I also think that he is getting caught up in the play calling of the Seahawks as well. Like when the, when the Hawks drop back and Russell has to do your traditional uh, five-set drop or 90 protection, whatever you want to call it in your football terms, most of those plays are slow developing big plays down the field. So he's got to hold the ball. Then you put an offensive line in front of him that, you know, has a different guard this week, a different tackle that week. There's no continuity there. So there are a lot of things that gives the perception, I feel like, that he's holding on to the ball and that he's not on time. At times, does he hold on to the ball? For sure. Um, but I think that over the years, he's begun to limit that. And I think last year was his best year when it came to that. But when you're in an offense to where they ask you to fake zone left, boot out to the right, you're blind to the DN, you have no idea if he bit on the run or not, now, make, now get your eyes down the field and make a decision, it takes some time for that to happen. Um, but again, Kurt Warner knows knows what he's talking about, so I'm gonna I'm gonna take what he says. But I also think that Russell Wilson's play, um, he's a product of what his offense is and what um, his personnel is. Good to hear Michael Bumpus filling in for Jim Moore there, and that full discussion is available on the Bob David Moore podcast online, and you can also listen to the full Kurt, Kurt Warner interview uh, on just part of John Clayton's podcast. It is Mariners Legends Week this week on 710 ESPN and getting to chat with uh, some of the biggest names in Mariners history. Edgar Martinez joining Danny and Gallant yesterday, but also love that the conversation drifted towards A-Rod and Danny O'Neill uh, taking the position that A-Rod is a Mariner legend. That's how it played out. He, he wanted everybody to like him and it, it and it. It backfired because he pretended he wanted to come back and he really, he took the cash. And there's nothing wrong with that, but he never said he took the cash and he just took the cash. So we were been mad forever. It's, it's time to get over it, Paul. And I'm talking to myself as much as I am to anybody out there. He played for a very limited time in Seattle and is one of this franchise's most prolific and productive players. And oh, by the way, I don't want to say that he was clean because none of us really know that. But all of the steroid stuff generally came later, came after he went to Texas. 
I think it's time to say that Alex Rodriguez is a Mariner legend, Paul. Danny having that opinion earlier in the day and then later on Tom, Jake and Stacy uh, having a little discussion on that very topic as well. Tom maybe agreeing with Danny. Does he qualify as a Mariners legend? We're doing Mariner legends this week. Does he qualify? Can, can we address that point second, Tom? I, I think I need to do some therapy here for you. Really? Why? You now think <laughs> A-Rod's sympathetic and you got a man crush on A-Rod? I just, kind of, I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm having trouble getting there with you, man. I'm sorry. Why? Help him, like Salk. It. Help him. I don't. I don't like a Rod. I've never really liked a Rod. I didn't. Li- I mean, I thought he was fine as a Mariner. I mean, I, I didn't mind him as a Mariner. I thought, you know, I thought it was great when Mariners fans threw dollar bills at him and everything. When he went to, when he went to Texas and he took the money, and then he, you know, was sad that he wasn't good enough to make that team great by himself because he was taking such a such a huge amount of money that they weren't able to build enough around him. And then all of a sudden he wanted to go to to the Yankees and wanting to go to the Yankees is one of the lamest things an athlete can do. It's such a cry for help. Like, oh, I can't do it myself. I guess I better go to the Yankees. It's such a it's such a lame and typical and almost a trope for an athlete to want to do that. So no, I, he's a guy who always wants to be liked. He, he and, and to the point where he doesn't even have enough of his own personality. He's got rabbit ears. I just I've never liked A Rod. Not since not since he left Seattle. Doesn't that make you feel legend. sorry for I will him? Agree though? With you that he's a Mariners legend. Doesn't any of that make you feel sorry for him, the fact that he wants to be liked so bad? Like, there's a hurting man inside there. That's a good point. <laughs> that is a good point. But no, I don't, I don't treat my athletes that way. Like, if I knew him, I would feel bad for him, maybe. Like, if I, were, if I had grown up with A-Rod and had always known him, then, yeah, maybe I would have that, that level of sympathy. But I guess I'm just not wired that way when it comes to guys and, and like the athletic achievements. I just I've never really thought about them that way. But I I get where I you're think, coming from. I think he needs me. That's my point. Go ahead, Jake. <laughs> you think Tom, he needs you? Thomas, we all do. Tom is yeah. thoroughly. Tom, you're obsessed. Tom is thoroughly is convinced. He's, he's obsessed. He's become obsessive, <laughs> and I, we we really don't know what to do with him, Sock, in this situation. Yeah. So, I like um, I, I like this is now, your problem now. I, yeah, the, we we task you with this situation <laughs> a common opinion though seemed like yesterday uh on 710 espn both danny o'neill and uh, tom wassell sharing in on that one up next on the blitz it is time for the hot list we've got updates on the nba's return and how they schedule the timeline would work on that also we're hearing some nfl news on training camps not being able to be held outside of the state what that will mean for certain teams, it's next in the Hollis, right here on 710 ESPN Seattle. You're listening to The Blitz from the Alaska Airlines Studio. It's time for The Hot List. Holy mackerel! The headlines for the day in sports every morning at 6.45. Heck yes! What are we missing here? A full breakdown of the top stories of today on your morning drive. Let's go! As we know, the clock is ticking at this point for Major League Baseball. Their desire to return or have some kind of season in 2020 on the line as discussions continue between Major League Baseball and the Players Association. Jeff Passan yesterday and time being of the essence right now. 
Nobody in baseball wants there to be the lack of a season, but I think both parties understand we're getting down to the nitty-gritty at this point, where if they want to beat the NBA back, if they want to beat the NHL back, a deal needs to get done in fairly short order. And by proposing or at least putting out there the possibility of a 50-game season, Major League Baseball said to the Players Association, hey, we always have this option, let's meet somewhere in the middle. Jeff Passan also on the middle ground between these different proposals we've heard from both sides. The Players Association came to Major League Baseball, Kevin, with a 114-game season at a full prorated salary, meaning they would get about 70% of their expected salary. A 50-game season would pay them about 31%. Let's remember, though, do a little bit of math here. 50, <laughs> 114, what's right in the middle? 82 games, which is exactly what Major League Baseball had proposed the first time. So it seems like if, if there is a spot for them to land, it is going to be in that 80-something game range. And maybe if the players agree to it, a slight pay cut. And that is how, presumably, we're going to see baseball in 2020. Buster only know, mentioning that MLB not really negotiating, or at least seeming not to. That they're not really negotiating. They just seem to be repackaging their ideas and then presenting them again, and they're not really working toward the middle ground. For example, on the owner side, we initially heard about maybe a 50-50 revenue split, giving the players a chunk of money saying, this is what's available. The players indicated no, that wouldn't be acceptable. So then we got the sliding scale 82 game proposal. And then yesterday we heard about, well, you know what? Uh, if the 82 game is not acceptable, the sliding scale, we'll give you a 50 game schedule with this same chunk of money. And on the player's side, all their proposals are that the players would get full prorated salary. If MLB decides to exercise uh, their right to create the season or start the season as they see fit, as they believe they have, under the power of that March agreement, where it says as long as they're in good faith were these discussions that they could ultimately decide when baseball would return to play. And they decide to play 50 games as a last resort. What is the likelihood that uh, some MLB players choose not to play? I think pretty much 100%. Look, we heard from Blake Snell asking the question out loud on that video. Uh, essentially, is it worth it? And I think a lot of players are going to be asking that question whenever they get the final terms in the deal with the owners. And I do think eventually they'll get to a deal. Uh, but there might be health concerns for an individual player. There might be a player who's headed into free agency in the fall and says, you know what, I don't want to be judged on a small sample. There might be concerns about uh, injury risks, especially after this weird spring training thing that they're going through. I think that's why the players the other day, with their 114-game proposal, addressed the idea of players who opt out of playing this year and asking that they get fully paid. Agents are telling me there will be players who will not participate. One thing that seems to be certain is that both sides will end up losing if there is no season, if they can't come to an agreement. The players would like to play as much as possible because the way their last agreement with the owners was structured, the one they struck in March, the more they play, the more they get paid. Well, owners probably are better off with a shorter season. They're not better off with no season, but it seems like they're a little better off with a shorter season because they'll make almost as much money on the TV side. And if the season's a little shorter, they'll have to pay out less in player salaries. I think ultimately there's going to be a deal struck, assuming that the public health situation allows it, because both sides lose if there's no season. 
That was the Athletics. Keep La on with ESPN Radio. Also, an update on the MLS season. Taylor Twelman commenting on the events leading up to the MLS, inching towards a deal. Friday afternoon, I had word that the players had agreed to return to Orlando, and then Sunday at noon, I've got 15 texts and a couple voicemails saying the owners are going to lock them out over a pandemic clause, which is a little mind-boggling, if you ask me, when the pandemic clause is going to be based on, the force majeure is going to be based on attendance, which really isn't a player's responsibility. Scott, so it went zero to 100, and then obviously the emotions, uh, everyone put them aside. Uh, the owners came to their senses, uh, and now it looks like there's going to be an agreement. Um, tonight is where the players are all going to come around, come together, listen to it, ratify it. Uh, but from all indications that I've got at the moment right now, but this is 2020, so expect the unexpected. Uh, it's going to be ratified, and there's going to be some games. Taylor Tolman also on the possibility for MLS tapping into a new audience with a later start. Uh, it's been incredible to hear a lot of people speak on their experience of being black in America and being a black man in particular uh, in this time. And Herm Edwards, always love to hear from coach, Arizona State University head coach, with some thoughts yesterday saying racism is getting exposed because it's on camera. Here's the, here's the shame of it all. The incident that happened in Minnesota, why you see it, it all of a sudden breaking out in all these other cities? Because we have to come to, to this turn that th- there is some racism in America. The problem with it now, it's getting exposed because now it's on film. It's on film for everybody to see. Right? And so, yeah. before, maybe police were doing this in certain areas of, of the country and it wasn't on film. Well, you see these outbursts all over because Probably in some, some some communities, they said, this happened to us, too. Maybe the guy didn't die, but maybe it was some pre- uh, police brutality in, in, in certain areas of the country that was never on tape. This, it's on tape now. And it's hard to watch. It is hard to watch. Herm Edwards, on him believing that America is better than this. Because here's the thing about, you know, protesting and progress. It doesn't happen overnight. It really doesn't. It's, it's going to benefit their kids. And that's what you got to look at. It's, it's not going to happen. They're going to, have to turn light switch off. Oh, we're going to change all this stuff. No, it's going to take time for it to change. But I think because of the emotion we have right now as a, as a country, people are starting to have this conversation. And you got to have this conversation, to be quite honest, at the supper table with your kids, if you have young kids. And tell them this is not right. America's better than this. Guys, this is unbelievable to watch. I mean, we got the National Guard. We got, I mean, this is, this is crazy. This is like some third world country. This is America. We're, we're way better than this. Herm Edwards also saying, though, the positive thing is working together. We have to, to use a, a football terminology, the coach saying we have to huddle up so we can progress. Well, it's one thing to have a conversation, but who are you having a conversation with? This is, this is an uncomfortable conversation for a lot of people. And I think this is where, you know, sports is so unique, uh, the huddle. And when you think about a huddle in football or in life, people come from all different walks of life and, and different beliefs. But they come in there and they, they have this conversation of what it's going to take to be successful, uh, not only as a football team, but in life. And I think until we can get groups together and have a conversation, communicate, 
then we're always at, we, we always run to our corners and say this is what it is. This is what we got to get together. We got to find a lot as a country and and talk about these issues so we can progress. Uh, that was Herm Edwards. Also yesterday on CNN, got to hear from Magic Johnson, Hall of Famer. And he talked about his experience being a parent in particular, saying if this can happen to George Floyd, it can happen to his kids. Well, let's look at George Floyd. He did everything he was supposed to do. Mm. And this police officer put all his body weight, all his body weight on his neck, right, for eight minutes. So if that can happen to George Floyd, it can happen to EJ and Andre and more black men. And so we're, we're fed up with this. It, it's it's got to stop. And then last but not least, Anderson, these young people got to have a voice at the table. They want their voices heard. They want, they want their concerns heard. And then they want action to take place. And so they're going to still protest for a long time until their voices are heard. Magic also commenting on what it's like to have that conversation with your kids. Well, it doesn't matter if I'm Magic Johnson or not. My kids, just like I am, still a black man, right? And yes, I had that conversation because it's important that I have that conversation with both EJ and Andre. If you pulled over, make sure, you know, you got your hands out of the window. Make sure that you comply. Justin Anderson, Brooklyn Nets guard, also speaking yesterday about feeling even some hesitancy to join protests due to fear. I reached out to my former college teammate and lifelong brother, Malcolm Brogdon, to ask him if he wanted to come as well. And he was like, yeah, I actually was on the phone with Jalen. You know, we should go together. And he gave me that confidence and that courage because there was a little bit of hesitancy from being honest and being vulnerable. There was a fear of knowing the history of protests and people getting tear gassed and people getting dogs let off on them and biting them and people getting water hoses sprayed at them and uh, the, the history of what comes with peacefully marching for injustice and for equality for all. Also, a lot of college coaches having important conversations with their team right now, the possibility of returning to school soon, but I thought this was a pretty vulnerable moment. Ken Numatololo, a Navy football head coach, he was speaking, I believe, on Freddie and Simmons this morning and Got a little bit emotional, low, emotional. Well, excuse me, about hearing play from players their stories about what they have had to go through. You know, we had one player just talked about when things came out with the Trayvon Martin deal, and just it was just interesting. Just hear his perspective. He said, "Coach, here's some things that you know my parents had to teach me. Just like, hey, um... you lose, coach." No, I'm here. Um, you okay. need a minute, Coach? You okay? You need a minute? Yeah, yeah but just uh, one of my players just said, Coach, um, my parents, after this deal happened, my mom was telling me, hey, when you go in the store, don't put on the hood. Keep your hands out of your pocket. Um, uh-huh. I was just blown away to hear that. I mean, I... Those are things as a dad I've never even thought about. You know, I'm, I'm a minority, but I've never had to tell my kids when you go in the store, don't wear a hood, keep your hands away from your pockets. And, you know, I've never had to tell them those things and raise them. It just, it was just, it was, it was, it was a beautiful meeting. And I, I think it was eye-opening. Like you said, I'm 55 years old, and I never even thought of something like that. 
to hear of a kid say that Coach Veer things that my parents told me that I had to do to keep me safe. And it was just like, wow. Never uh, too old to listen, to learn, to empathize, to educate, uh, as Ken proved yesterday. As the NBA models a 22-team format for the season's proposed resumption beginning July 31st in Orlando, Florida, a timeline uh, with teams was shared that says the last possible date for a finals game seven will land on October 12th. According to the ESPN report, Adrian Wojnarowski was on uh, with Scott Van Pelt last night discussing that and how the NBA postseason could lay out. October 12th, teams have been informed would be the last possible day of the NBA season. A Game 7 of the NBA Finals would be pegged to that day. And so it essentially gives you the framework in the 22-team model that the league has been focused on and moving toward bringing to the owners on Thursday. You would have a July 31 opening tip and potentially an October 12th end date of the season. And then you'd have your draft and free agency in sequential order after that. Meanwhile, in a memo from Roger Goodell in the NFL the uh, to all of the teams, he let them know that NFL teams will have to hold training camps this summer at their main practice facilities because of concerns for the coronavirus pandemic, and they won't be able to travel out of state. The memo was obtained by ESPN and Roger Goodell writing in it, quote, the NFLPA was strongly in favor of these two decisions, the second being uh, to hold no joint training camp practices with other teams. But uh, Goodell wrote, quote, these two decisions, which were made to limit exposure risk by avoiding the need for clubs to clean and maintain two facilities, by limiting the need for players and club staffs to travel to another location, and by limiting travel and contact between players on different clubs in the context of joint practices. The next phase of reopening began Monday with clubs allowed, allowing uh, ticket offices, retail shops, and other customer-facing facilities to reopen as long as they fully complied with state and local regulations, though Currently, no coaches are allowed in team facilities, although that could change in the near future. NFL players not expected to return to their team facilities until training camp, according to ESPN. That's a wrap for the Hot List and the entire Blitz at 6 Hour. Danny and Gallant coming your way next right here on 710 ESPN Seattle.